Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to software. Episode 16, Glenn Vanderberg on engineering, software, and software engineering. The most important thing for you to know about Glenn Vanderberg is that around 2010, I was visiting a pretty high-performing rent-a-programmer company. Basically, I invited myself to visit them for a week, pair with their programmers, and learn how they did things. While they were cordial, none of the Ruby programmers seemed to want to pair with me. Glenn took pity on me and invited me to help out with his project, which was in a fairly new programming language called Clojure. The result was that Clojure became my default programming language for something over eight years and was essential to my most successful book. Those who aren't as fascinated by my life story as I am probably care more that he is one of the two most thoughtful people I know when it comes to the relationship between software and conventional engineering, the other being Hillel Wayne. He is also the person I described in episode three as, quote, generally less excitable than me. As such, he pushed back on my comparison of software engineering to Monte Carlo methods in episode 12, and so the only sensible thing was to invite him onto the podcast. This is not an argument. Remember, the idea behind the podcast is not to attempt to shoot down ideas, but rather to ask, if that idea were true, what might that inspire us to try? The point of the episode is to work with Glenn's ideas about the engineering in software engineering. So, Glenn, if I become argumentative, as is my nature, feel free to shut me down. That said, Glenn, what about you have I left out? Uh, well, I can be argumentative, too, although I do try to be uh, thoughtful, as you've said. Um, I remember that week that you were visiting us pretty well um, and that closure project we were working on. Uh, you and I had met in years prior to that at some Oopsla conferences, I think. And in particular, you helped lead the first Oopsla essays track at, I think, Oopsla 2005, maybe. And I submitted something and, and um, it was the only essay accepted for that initial track. And I, I'm still really proud of that that paper. That paper was actually some of the very first work that I did to seriously start to understand what kind of engineering discipline and rigor was really appropriate for uh, our field. And that grew into uh, some of the later work that you're referring to when you talk about me thinking about the relationship between software development and engineering. I will try to put that paper up on the show notes. Okay. That said, what do we think about engineering, we being software people, that isn't true? <laughs> Mostly, it's the same thing that everybody thinks about engineering that isn't true. Just to back up a little bit, you mentioned uh, Hillel also. And Hillel and I came at this problem from two different directions. I came at it, uh, as is my want, from reading books. <laughs> and um, Hillel actually heard my talk on software engineering and uh, initially thought I was full of it and decided to prove me wrong. And he went about it by going to interview people who had actual real experience in both things, in traditional engineering fields and in software development. So I went to, I went to books and he went to people and 
end up having very similar conclusions, which I find immensely gratifying. And uh, something about it really makes me happy that uh, initially he was setting out to prove how wrong I was. I don't say that in a triumphal way, uh, but I think it gives a lot of credibility to what he produced. So anyway, one of the things that I found as I started reading about traditional engineering and how it's actually practiced, and what he found as he interviewed people with experience in both domains, is that the very widespread stereotype about how engineers work and think is dead wrong and really bears almost no relationship to how engineering is actually practiced. The stereotype is what Simon, I guess his name was Herbert Simon, uh, called the rational model. You know, you analyze the problem and and think about the requirements of your solution and sort of in a step-by-step way, work from that towards synthesizing a, a solution that meets those requirements and then you're done. Is this the Sciences of the Artificial? Yeah, the it book? is right. And um, as Frederick Brooks points out in his book, uh, The Design of Design, that's just a very natural model for people to conceive of. It has independently been invented a number of times and passionately argued for as the right way to, to build systems or design things or or whatever, but it's not how anything of any complexity gets built in the real world. The way, way things actually get built is to start with something small. Uh, you know, Gall's Law, you, you start with a small system that works and iterate until it's a big system that works. Sometimes you kind of have to do that on paper, but still it's kind of an iterative, incremental, experimental process. Uh, an empirical process rather than a defined step-by-step linear process like the rational model. So paper, and perhaps to some extent science and mathematics, is what you fall back to when you can't try it and see cheaply enough. Sure, yes, that's right. The, the stereotype of engineering that, that most people believe comes from the, the most prominent engineering artifacts that we see all around us all the time. Not necessarily the most common engineering artifacts, but the most prominent ones, bridges and large structures. And in that kind of world, the cost of labor and materials to actually build a thing dominates so strongly that actual prototyping and physical testing is prohibitively expensive. And so it becomes more economical to do a lot of inspections and reviews and and careful validation on paper in order to save actually building the thing and testing it. And that led a lot of people in the early history of software engineering research to conclude that's what engineers do and that's the right way to do engineering. But in actual fact, in other traditional engineering disciplines where either scale is not as important so you can build small-scale prototypes and trust that they are actually pretty representative of the full-scale thing, or you have ways of synthesizing a prototype fairly cheaply, like, for example, circuit boards, things like that. Engineering is actually much more iterative, and there's much less reliance on any kind of, of inspection and validation by other engineers to figure out that you've got it right, because the goal is to reach robust solutions in economical ways, not necessarily follow some abstract idea of what the right way to do it is. 
it's very much in line with Kent Beck's old driving metaphor for how a software project is built, right? You don't, you don't get somewhere by pointing your car in the right direction and making sure it's lined up right and then just pushing the gas. You watch and adapt and correct and steer along the way. It sounds like you're saying we do the kind of engineering that real engineers do. One thing that comes to mind is I, I don't know that we have the same approach to satisfying constraints where cost is a yes. big constraint. We we don't seem to take cost into account. We kind of wing it. If what we're doing is already a kind of engineering what is the advantage of paying attention to engineering? This kind of gets right to the heart of some of the discussions we were having on Twitter a while back that uh, led to this interview. You're right. We don't have the same approach to costs as traditional engineering disciplines do. Although I will point out that um, results of engineering projects adhering to budgets is much more spotty than the popular wisdom would lead you to believe. But we don't have the same approach. Why is that? Well, one reason, I think, is because uh, even though we have a lot in common with other engineering disciplines, we have our differences as well. And there are some fundamental differences that we haven't understood very well and don't yet have the right tools for uh, conceptual tools for dealing with. The other reason is that we were kind of misled, and this is where it's going to sound like I'm playing right into your argument, but I'm not. We've been misled by a mistaken pursuit of, <laughs> let's try to learn how to be engineers. You said uh, we just kind of wing it with regard to costs and, and don't even consider it sometimes. Well, growing out of the stereotype of how engineering works, that was actually very explicit in a lot of the software engineering circles in the 80s and 90s. Maybe not in the actual work from serious academics, but I don't know how many discussions I was involved in where people said more or less explicitly, this way of doing it, this rational model-based linear uh, holistic way of viewing the design is the right way and cost shouldn't be an object. <laughs> You're, you're aiming at some platonic ideal of the engineering process, and the goal is to make it right and solid and robust, and this is the right way to do it, so you shouldn't worry about cost. So, yes, part of the problem is we, we mistakenly fixated on trying to learn how to do it like engineers do, but we were chasing a false target. Engineering processes have evolved to take cost into account. One part of the stereotype of engineering is that engineers use math and formalisms and mathematical models because that proves that the designs are correct. But that's not why they do that at all. They do that because it saves money to use mathematical approximations of real materials, and mathematical models are always approximations of real materials. It saves money to do that rather than going to have to do going and doing a lot of physical testing. So there, the the misconceptions about what engineering really is and how it works run so deep in culture in general, and and especially in software, that we really got misled by those misconceptions and pursued a false goal. The value, I think is that 
we should learn from real engineers and how engineering is really done and uh, start to figure out how that applies and can help us manage costs in software world. And a very valuable byproduct uh, of us doing that is that it could help other engineering disciplines understand each other better and learn from each other and from us. Uh, and this is an outcome of Hillel's work that I wasn't expecting at all, was not only do we not engineer, uh, understand other kinds of engineering, they don't understand each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's almost no uh, cross-pollination between engineering disciplines, and that seems like a huge wasted opportunity. Yeah, I'm not sure computer programmers are the people to fix that, being how famous uh, we true. are for telling other people what they're doing wrong and how yes. they ought to be doing their job. At this point, I sort of derail the conversation into some skippable discussion about reducing the cost of machinery when it comes to web apps and the cost of programmers in general. I do want to highlight something that Glenn said. My guess is, knowing you, that your focus on engineers doing their job better their job is writing code that can change as the yes. business needs change because cost of change has historically been the cost people pay attention to. So in a way, focusing on reducing cost of change is a focus on cost. Yeah, definitely. The yeah. dominant kind of cost. That's right. And I, I just don't think there's any shortcuts to that. All, all the efforts to to find ways to need fewer programmers other than building better software. Seems like wishful thinking and shortcuts. At this point, I talked about constraints and about how we as programmers don't seem to worry about constraints as much as other engineers do. I referred to Herbert Simon's idea of satisficing from his book, The Sciences of the Artificial. Satisficing is finding a solution that's good enough along several different dimensions. Thinking of myself in the past, it seemed to me that I didn't do much conscious satisficing. Glenn pushed back. You know, I, I think there's actually a lot of that, a lot more than you might have been aware of. The, the constraints are maybe different than what we would think about in a physical engineering field, but they're there. I talked about trying to break programmers of the habit of micro-optimizing things, every little loop and every cycle, when, when that really wasn't important anymore. And those kinds of <clears throat> balancing of constraints are encoded in little bits of lore, like Knuth's thing about don't bother optimizing anything but the mm -hmm. inner loop of your program, or Rob Pike's thing about fancy algorithms are slow when n is small and n is usually small. We satisfy multiple constraints all the time when we think about choosing architecture for uh, background processing for web applications. There's so many ways you can optimize that, but mm -hmm. for most purposes, you pick something that's fast enough and don't don't sweat it. Batch processing on a web application is, is an example of balancing those constraints anyway. In a web application, you want to turn that request around as fast as you can, but there are things that might need to be done in response to it that take longer. So you build a system to offload that kind of, of work and make sure you have transactional protections around it so that it doesn't get lost if it was important. And then you can report back to the web browser, done. Even if you know it won't 
appear in the all the places it needs to go for a few minutes. Eventual consistency is a, a way of balancing multiple constraints in a, a, a large system. That makes me think one of the things you hear is that it costs fantastically more to put in a kilometer of subway in New York than it does mm-hmm. in Paris. The most convincing explanation I've heard about that is that in Europe, you are you spend your career working on doing maintain, maintenance on a particular system, whereas in the U.S., it's a one-shot product. You don't continue working with the same product over time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that you're talking about seem to me to be the sort of tacit or water cooler style knowledge that gets passed along in France, say, but doesn't get passed along in the U.S. so much. So that might be something that you would want to focus on, keeping people on things for long enough period. <laughs> yes. That 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 is a real problem in the software world and I can't speak to other, you know, uh industries. It is a real problem in in some parts of the software world where people don't stay on a project long enough to feel the cost of their mistakes and learn oh, from yes. them or their successes for that matter. I, I guess the classic example of that is the consultant different consulting firms have different ways of operating. And so depending on which which consulting firm you work for, you might be the one who builds the thing to start with and then moves on to another project and never gets to feel the cost of that. Or you might be in a project rescue kind of practice where you're the one who comes in and cleans up everybody else's mistakes later and, and fixes a project that's in trouble. And there you learn a lot more about the, the bad things you can do. But very few people stick around the same project for long enough to really see both sides of that and know, hey, I'm, I'm to blame for all of it. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I need to learn from that. Yeah. Keith Braithwaite tells a story where he and maybe a consultant invented some very clever, quote unquote, elegant mathem mathematically based solution to some particular problem only to discover that it was too elegant for anybody coming after them to actually understand it. So it became (laughs) an impediment to change. I hope I've got the story right. I'll, I'll try to ask him, but they eventually ripped it out and did the simple stupid thing instead. Yeah, that's an easy thing to imagine, easy thing to picture happening. I've seen a similar thing happen in the history of Ruby on Rails. I am still a fan of Ruby on Rails for a lot of kinds of things, but I started in it super early uh, when when 1.0 still hadn't been released. And a lot of Rails is based on particular ideas about architecture and a lot of conventions. Uh, some of those conventions are pretty explicit and others not so much. Um, but when you're around and, and involved as a community of practice is growing around something like that, you hear those discussions about 
how, what, what should the conventions be and what, what are the right ways to do things? You internalize those and you play with those assumptions. And if you play with those assumptions, Rails is, is still uh, a wonderful way to build web applications. In, in those early days, uh, Chad Fowler gave a, a talk called Active Record, Easy Living on the Golden Path. And I, I think about that phrase a lot when I'm using Rails. If you work with it and work with those assumptions and the way it's intended to be, it, it, it's really wonderful. Well, then a few years later, you start to see people coming to Rails who weren't part of all of those discussions or any of those discussions, and they pick up a book and they skip the chapter about the philosophical underpinnings and the, the assumptions mm-hmm. and, and the right ways to do things and just go look up the API docs and try to use it as a library with their architecture in mind. And I think on many Rails projects, that was the predominant mode from, from 2012 or 2013 onward. And it, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, uh, in, in contrast to Braithwaite's example, I wouldn't describe Rails as... Uh, fantastically elegant or or, Mm -hmm. uh, sophisticated or anything in that way. But it has, in addition to the explicit parts of its design, there's an underlying philosophy and attitude about uh, how it should all work. And conveying that to newcomers is a real challenge, not least because it's hard to get them to understand why it's important. Uh, I always bring up my wife, professor of veterinary medicine. And some people think of medicine as being very science-based, but an awful lot of medicine is you do things the way your teacher in an apprenticeship sort of way taught you. And that's both Mm -hmm. risky because you get stuck in the old way, but also beneficial because there's just so much that you have to do by habit. Yeah. And yeah. if you tried to reason your way to those habits, it'd be inefficient at the very best and quite mm-hmm. possibly impossible. And that, that's one part of the rationale, I guess, of the Dreyfus model uh, of skills acquisition. Part of it is, yeah, shut up and learn these habits. <laughs> you know, that, then you might be able to recognize oper- times when you can break out of those habits. But for the most, most part, uh, just do it like we've told you to do it. Mm-hmm. So, as we're getting toward the end here, I'll bring out my tough question. There's a notion in American law, U.S. law, called an attractive nuisance, mm-hmm. which is if you have playground equipment or a swimming pool on your property, you are expected to understand that it will attract small children who can then kill or injure themselves. And you must take reasonable steps to prevent those children, such as having a fence that's at least four feet tall around a pool with a locked gate. And I don't know what reasonable counts because uh, we don't have a pool. I've been also, I've been reading about Lenin recently, and Lenin had that sort of rationalist attitude. I have solid science behind me, he thought. And and I can analyze I am, the situation and apply that science and yeah. I will design a system. Both he and, I'm going to mess the name up, but an architect city planner called Le Corbusier, Corbusier. 
Corbusier, they both thought of themselves as designing machines. Le Corbusier famously described a home as a machine for living. <laughs> is not an attitude that makes for a very livable home. So my question is, since 1968 or 69, we've had this notion of software engineering that you refer to as academic software engineering, in which... I wish I had a better term for that. In which people treat engineering as this rational process instead of the way you describe it. We've also got... French guy whose name I can't pronounce, and Lenin, who are both doing the same thing. They're, they have this idea of engineering, and they want to apply it to humanity. Mm -hmm. Maybe engineering is an attractive nuisance. Wouldn't we be better <laughs> off just focused on what we need to do to do things better and not let ourselves wander so close to the edge of that swimming pool when the past 60 years has taught us we can't swim? Yeah. I'm going to say uh, you're very close to something there, but it's not engineering that's the attractive nuisance. It's the rational model that's the attractive nuisance. The rational model uh, was what we uh, were chasing for decades in the software world uh, to our detriment. The rational model was what led Lenin and Le Corbusier to you know, down, down the wrong path there in, in, in their two domains. Um, I think we see that all over the place. Again, calling back to Brooks's book, The Design of Design, you know, he talks about how attractive and, and uh, seductive even the rational model is. And um, he tells the story of uh, when he was in engineering school, engineering had been seen as a design discipline. But in the period after the World Wars, uh, and, and especially sort of the triumph of science in World War II, there was a pushback on that. And um, people wanted to see engineering as simply a branch of applied science. And so uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist John Van Vleck was made the dean of the School of Engineering where Brooks went to school and tried to see it in a very rational model kind of way. It seems so nice. And you see it popping up everywhere, and people just assume that's how you can build things. But it's not how you build things of any complexity, especially when, to, to come back to Lenin and Le Corbusier's examples, when people are part of those systems. In engineering processes, people are part of the system. And one of the nice things about the Agile crowd that you and I both know so well uh, from those old days is there was a lot of explicit acknowledgement of people are parts, are components of these systems, both the, the system of designing and building the software and in most cases, the, the, the milieu in which the software will run and operate. And you have to deal with the variation and, and vagaries and undependability uh, of people. And um, so, yeah, I think the rational model is an attractive nuisance. And uh, anytime we see somebody approaching a complex problem-solving domain with that as their ground, we should try to disabuse them of that. So... From a, a statistical process control or quality engineering perspective, people are 
components of the system with really high variance. Not just among, but also within individuals. And you can have two reactions to that. One is to squeeze the variance out of them, and the other is to design a system that is tolerant of high variation. Yes. Interesting. Uh, any Anything else that you'd like to get off your chest? Well, our discussion has reminded me of a couple of things, and I will just send them along to you to include in the show notes for like further reading. Okay. One is David Parnas's paper, uh, a rational, rational design process. Uh, how a rational design process? It. How and why to fake it? Yep, that's right. I love that. Um, paper. Which yeah, I do too. And and I misunderstood it for a number of years before I finally broke through to, to realize what he was talking about. And also a a talk by my friend Neil Ford from over 10 years ago, and I'll have to try to track it down, but I think it's called Constraints Are Liberating. And it's an analysis of how, when properly approached, constraints in our systems can really unlock a lot of room for creativity. So I'll find the real title and dig up the video link and send it to you to include in the show notes. Okay. That's good then. Uh, So thank you for talking with us, me, and uh, thanks to those who are listening to this. And now I will push the little red button that stops things.